and welcome to another episode of 10th and L, brought to you by True North Church in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Philip Coleman. I am the lead pastor and one of the elders here at True North Church, and we are excited to bring you uh, another resource from True North that we believe will be an encouragement to your walk with the Lord and hopefully an opportunity for you to learn a few things uh, and maybe grow in your understanding of um, theology, doctrine, practice, philosophy, things like that. Um, we do have some new artwork you may notice that's up today uh, with the uh, with the podcast, and so I want to give a shout out to my wife, Andy, who designed that for us. We had a couple of finalists for potential replacement art to the black and white placeholder art we were using for our first two episodes, and she did a great job. People were really excited, like the mountains, like the font. So great job, Andy. Thank you. Um, and I'll just remind you, if you ever have any questions or comments or ideas for a future episode, you can let us know at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. We'd love to hear from you. A few announcements for you. Uh, our next prayer night in worship is going to be on Thursday, June the 10th at 6 p.m. here at the corner of 10th and L., um, we will be doing prayer for our city, prayer for the churches in the city, really the capital C church in Anchorage, which is broken into lots of smaller local churches. Uh, we'll have childcare that evening, so if you have kids, feel free still to plan to come out. Um, we'll be done about 8, 8.30, and uh, that time of year there will still be plenty of sun in the sky. If you're looking to get out for a bike ride or a hike, we'd love to see you that evening. Uh, we're also going to have our first ever volunteer appreciation day. That will be at the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center um, just south of Girdwood. We'll meet on July 17th at 10 a.m. at the gate, and the church will be covering the admission for any True North volunteer who serves in any area of ministry, as well as their kids, spouse, and immediate family. So uh, plan to meet us at 10. Lunch will not be provided, neither will transportation, but if you can be down there, uh, we'd love to cover the admission, and I think it's going to be a great day to be in the park altogether. And then finally, the next day will be our second church in the park. At the time that you're hearing this podcast, we should have already met at Cuddy Family Park once on May 30th at 11 a.m. We'll do that again a second time on July 18th, also at 11 a.m., also at Cuddy Family Park in Midtown. And a reminder to bring your own blanket or lawn chair, bring any lawn games that you have, a football, a frisbee. Uh, when we're done worshiping in the amphitheater together, we'll move over to the big field in the middle of the park and we'll do um, a cookout lunch all together. And you guys are free to hang, intermingle, get to know each other. This is going to be a great opportunity for you if you've only gotten to know people in your life group, especially coming out of COVID. These are going to be two great events to get networked and connected with the rest of the church. And then finally, a special announcement today from our student minister, Joshua Mangum. Josh is going to be hosting two rounds of what we are calling student ministry orientation for any student who is finishing, or I should say at this point, has finished fifth grade and will be entering sixth grade and therefore student ministry at True North in the fall. So Josh, take it away and let us know when those are going to be, what they are, and what we should expect. Cool. Thank you for this opportunity. It's really exciting to get to be on uh, this 10th and L podcast. I'm so excited that we are starting this as a church. I'm excited to think about, dream about all the conversations we'll get to have here. Uh, so yeah, this event, The Expectations, it's an event for those students entering sixth grade uh, this August. Uh, it will be two nights this summer, June 6th and then July 18th, where uh, future students will get to see what student ministry is like on Thursday nights. Uh, I've gotten to know many of these students 
serving in the children's ministry on Sundays, and I'm just super excited to get them in the student ministry this fall and this summer, uh, give you the opportunity, give these students the opportunity to see what we do on Thursday night. So the layout's going to be pretty basic. I'll do a question and answer. Parents, I want you there too. We'll do question and answer with parents, and we'll also give students the opportunity to sit in on a life group for their own age group. That will be really cool. This will probably be the first time for several of them to experience that. We'll also have games I'll teach and uh, we'll have snacks. So super excited for that. Once again, it will be June 6th and July 18th, starting at 6.30 p.m. And uh, please email me if you want to be there. I kind of want to have an estimate on all of the students that will be there these nights. So I'm super stoked. I'm excited. So uh, please be there and uh, I'll see you at church. Thanks, Josh. So last week on the podcast, Tyler Wolf and I spent some time discussing evangelical idols and what we called disenculturation. This is a different idea from deconstruction. Uh, We tried to process that through three broad questions, three broad categories. First, What are things that evangelicals love that are not actually biblical? We spent some time discussing those things, trying to separate out uh, evangelical subculture from things that actually belong to Jesus, that are part of his gospel, his story, his word. Um, Second, we wanted to discuss how and why do those things become idols? If it's so easy for us to analytically separate them from the truth of the gospel, well, how do they feel that they become so interwoven that we can't do that work? And then three, what is disenculturation, and is it a better way out of evangelical idolatry than deconstruction would be? And we argued, yes, it is. Um, I won't spoil that discussion for you, but if you'd like to check that out, that's episode two of this podcast. So today, what we're going to be doing, and I say we, it's going to be just me today and you, wherever you are listening, I'm going to work my way through some questions that were submitted across the last couple of weeks. So here's what I've done. Um... A couple of Thursdays ago, I sat with the uh, True North Student Ministry, and I did a Q&A session with them. They were allowed to ask me anything, any questions about my personal life, ministry, their own lives, church, philosophy, the world, um, how I do my job, how I found out that I was supposed to do my job, things like that. I just wanted to demystify as much as I could to help them maybe glean something that might allow them to discern their calling or hear that there is hope for the future church, things like that. So I've taken a handful of those questions and I've combined them with two or three of the most common questions that I've gotten at starting points dinners, uh, as well as member meetings, life group leader meetings, um, and then just throughout my time as a member of a life group as well. So I'm going to work through 10 questions today. My objective is still to go about the same length of time that we typically have done on this podcast, roughly 40 minutes, give or take. Um, What I will say is, as I'm discussing this, though I already mentioned this at the top of the episode, if you have any questions, if you'd like to hear me further expand on this, uh, if you even disagree with my perspective on some of these things or would like to offer your own perspective, I would be so happy to receive feedback from you. Um, That would be a gift to me. So um, make sure you do that. Send any questions to info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. And if you would include podcast questions in the subject line of that email, that will make sure that that email gets to me quickly and that I can include it uh, in a future episode where we answer more questions or we may even dig into it in the next couple of weeks, depending on what our content stream looks like. So first question, we'll start with an easy one. This is one that came from one of the students. They asked me, um, one of my primary responsibilities at the church here is to preach anywhere between 
44 and 48 times a year on average. And so that means I spend 40 minutes a week. Um, if you attend True North, you're probably laughing a little bit to yourself that some weeks it's many more than 40 minutes. Uh, the 40 is what I aim for. Um, and, uh, and they wanted to know, how do I get over stage fright? How can I do that every week? Am I just, do I have some superpower? Is there some Bible verse I memorized that keeps me from ever being nervous? So here's my answer. How do I get over stage fright? What I would say is I have not gotten over stage fright. And I don't expect that I ever will. If you are a person who struggles to speak in front of people publicly, which I think is probably most of us in our natural state, uh, without training, without lots of experience, and and without having a, a deep relationship with the people that we're speaking to, we will probably never get over our stage fright. What has helped me has been to find a motivation that outweighs the fear that I have of the audience or in a local church context, the congregation. I believe that your fear may never go away, but I do think it's realistic for your fear to get out of the way. And so a follow-up question that I received when I discussed my way through this question uh, with the student ministry was, how do you do that then? How do you find a motivation that begins to outweigh your fear of people, your fear of performing poorly, your fear of... Um, at least at 1100 West 10th Avenue, where we meet now, of stepping off of a five-foot stage into oblivion on accident. Um, And I think for me, what it comes down to is exposure to people who have legitimate needs. It's probably the most important thing that I do in my life, in my week-to-week rhythm, is try to spend time with people who have real questions, people who may not be believers, people who have doubts, who've been in Christianity a long time, Um, I spend quite a bit of time every week discussing different things with our staff, both in staff meeting and just in uh, general passing in the hallways in our mutual shared office. Myself, Josh Mangum, and Tyler Wolf all share an office space. And so exposure to the issues that are facing real people, what that does for me is it doesn't give me a superhero complex. I think pastors have to be careful that we don't see ourselves as the Savior. Any ministry leader, even parents in the lives of their children, face this temptation. Um, But what 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 helps me is to remember that the thing that I'm getting on stage to do actually has transformative power. That if I handle it well, if I can present in a way where I get out of the way, where I'm not distracting my vocal cadence, my fear of man, my moving around the stage or not, my reading my notes too much or not, I have to get out of my head about those things and embrace that I'm participating in something that really doesn't have that much to do with me. Um, That it's God's avenue, it's his communication channel to the hearts and souls of human beings who if they can receive that communication, might be transformed permanently. And so for me, discerning that calling looked like working my gifts out in a local church context. Uh, When I was in high school and junior high, there were different moments where I had submitted to um, what are called spiritual gift inventories or spiritual gift tests. You can buy these online. You can take them online. Um, And I think they're fine. They can be a fine supplemental tool. But what worked for me was putting myself in a biblical community. And when I say biblical, I mean we were honest. We were primarily focused on knowing God, on becoming like Christ, on living the life that he lived and dying to ourselves. I don't just mean an affinity group or a friend group that all happened to attend the same church. We were serious about our time together. And I think out of that, um, there were moments where we were together in maybe smaller groups or even the whole group together where somebody would demonstrate an affinity or an ability that showed that God was at work in their life. And so for me, the way that that played itself out is people have, for most of my adult life, been very encouraged when I speak up in settings where we're discussing the Bible. Um, A lot of what I do feels very natural to me. It feels like I I just sort of have insight into the Bible. It's easy to understand. It's interesting. I like it. 
And the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that that is certainly not the case for everybody. And so I see that as a gift that God has given me. Certainly, I've taken on paper spiritual gift inventories before that have indicated that I might have a gift for teaching or preaching or knowledge or wisdom. But it's really been other believers looking me in the eye and saying, if you don't do this, the rest of us will suffer. And I don't mean that I'm the only person who can do that for anybody anywhere, but I mean in the context of my local church, I believe I am the primary voice that God has put here to do the preaching of the word on Sunday mornings and a lot of the teaching of the word throughout the week that happens. And so knowing that, having that responsibility, taking that very seriously has motivated me to get over myself, whatever stage fright I might have. And one of the things I tell myself when I'm most nervous on a Sunday morning is that the congregation really wants me to be up on stage. They're glad that I'm there. They want to hear what I have to say. They want to understand God's word better and to know him. Uh, So just as a caveat, if that's not true and you don't want me to be on stage, don't tell me. Just let me live in bliss so that I can maybe do a better job. Second question, how do I come up with a sermon every single week? This is another question I received from the student ministry. And so I want to just briefly, and I mean that, I want to, about three minutes here, talk you through my weekly rhythms and my philosophy of preaching um, and then I want to um, I want to demonstrate to you maybe or explain to you some other people who are further down the road from me who have benefited me in my teaching and preaching experience. So um, first of all, I start my sermon process on Sunday night or Monday morning, the Sunday or Monday before I'm going to be teaching and preaching. So in a regular rhythm where I'm preaching, you know, six or seven Sundays in a row, As soon as I'm done with the sermon on Sunday morning, I try to listen back through it as quickly as I can while it's still fresh on my mind. That helps me to be sure that I know what I actually said uh, versus what was written in my notes. Sometimes there's a little bit of variance there. Um, And then I try to go home and not think about it a lot the rest of that day. Um, Sometimes I take a nap. Sometimes I hang out and do something fun that afternoon just to relax. And then typically that evening, I'll begin to read through the passage that's going to be on my mind and on my heart for the upcoming week. And by Monday, I know what that is for sure. I understand uh, roughly the flow of that passage, having read it a couple of times the day before. My homework on Monday and Tuesday is to read through whatever passage I'm going to preach, regardless of how long or short it may be. I want to do that 10 times out loud. And the reason I do it out loud is because I inflect very differently. My internal voice reads very differently from my external voice. Uh, When I read out loud, it's more slow. I pick up on things. I catch them better. And so I typically have a notepad with me or I'll just have a Word document open that's called Workspace that I kind of clear out as a clean slate every week, delete all the notes from the week before and and rewrite it. Um, And I do that so I can just jot ideas down. Questions that may come up, I try to consider the text. If I don't know anything about the Bible, what would this look like? What would this sound like to me? If I didn't have church experience, if I don't even know what an Old or New Testament are, what are things about this passage that are going to be important that I, as a teacher, highlight to allow people to grab onto the concepts that are in play here? Um, Wednesday, I don't usually do a lot. Um, I try to just kind of let that cook. I'll go to the gym a couple of times during the week, and a lot of times while I'm exercising, listening to music, thoughts will crystallize for me. My subconscious or kind of passive part of my mind will just kind of be chewing on and sitting with certain things. I might hear... Um, another podcast, another sermon that I'm following, a book that I'm reading, something might highlight where I go, oh, that's good, I want to include that this week. But typically, that doesn't happen. Typically, where I am in my own time devotionally is very different from what I'm studying so that I don't justify away personal devotional time with the Lord in the name of just getting study done, which is certainly a threat that I think every pastor deals with. Um, And then I would just say early on, what has gotten me to the point where I really only have to put like eight to 10 hours a week into sermon preparation used to be much, much more than that. Um, 
was giving myself the freedom to not be very good. And so I would ask you to just consider the method with which a person learns to play an instrument. Let's say piano, for instance. If you are going to become a great piano player, then the first probably hundred songs that you play, that you memorize, are not things that you wrote yourself. They are songs that have merit, that stand on their own. They're good. People maybe across multiple generations have loved them if they're famous. Your job is to use those things to learn, to become familiar with the music and the theory of the music, as well as the instrument itself. And that's really the two things that are in play with public communication, even preaching. Um, Early on, when you become a new preacher, people warn you away from plagiarism. And I think that's good and right to keep you from reproducing somebody else's sermon verbatim. Uh, That's something that really has only been available recently with the advent of the internet access that all of us have. But it is okay to find a point that another preacher made that's a good and right biblical point and maybe put your own spin on it. Or a lot of times what I would do early in preaching is I would read the sermons of Charles Spurgeon. And I could never take his illustrations out because his illustrations were for 1850s London. But I could figure out what he was getting at culturally. What is it that he's commenting on? What what is this example really trying to say? And what color and depth and meaning does the illustration add to the text that he's preaching? And then I could use that as a model to form and fit an illustration that was maybe parallel to his, that accomplished the same goal, but was contextualized to the time and place that I live in. Um, And so similar to somebody who's learning to play piano, it's okay. And when you study these great preachers, you learn that their first thousand sermons or so involve just sort of lifting outlines out of theology books. They involve sitting underneath other great teachers and preachers and learning from them and adopting some of their style. Similar to an instrument, the longer you do this, the more reps you can get on a stage in front of a Bible study group with students, with children, with adults, whatever. You begin to learn the instrument, which is your voice and your body, the presentation elements, but you also begin to learn the theory, the philosophy. How do you connect to people? What do people care about? What are they afraid of? What does the Bible, what are the themes of Scripture? Not just individual points from Scriptures, but how do we tie together the whole meta narrative for people so that as we explain the Bible, we're really teaching them that it's cohesive. It isn't a bunch of broken up small ideas. It tells one story. It is 66 small books put together in one volume, but it is always moving us to a specific point, and that's Jesus himself. So that is a little bit of the method behind my madness. Um, As far as hours go, like I said, I don't do a lot on Wednesday. Thursday, I'll try to get an outline together. And then I'm really a pregame kind of pump-up guy. It's hard for me to feel the weight and responsibility of the sermon uh, too far out in the week. And so um, I give a fair amount of time, a number of hours on Saturday to sit down and work through uh, the manuscript. I preach from a word-for-word script in the pulpit. I bring that in with me on about eight pages. And so um, working through that in detail on Saturday, I can feel the weight of Sunday coming, and that provides me with a lot of urgency and helps me to put muscle and tissue onto the skeleton of the outline that I've worked on um, the week before. And God willing, at that point, I've read through the scripture something like between 30 and 50 times by Saturday afternoon. And so I'm feeling really familiar with the word order, with the flow, what's happening in the story. I'm able to take notes in my scripture journal so I can read and point out certain things. So that's my process. Past that point, I mean, I'd be happy to meet with any one of you who feels a call or maybe wrestling with a call to do preaching or teaching in the local church and to try to give you pointers on preparation, how to think through things. Um, I've got a couple different rubrics that I've built across the years that help me evaluate uh, preachers in preaching. I've used these with Josh Mangum and Tyler Wolf at different points in the past when they've preached. And so I would be very happy to come alongside you and help you if that's something I could do um, to build into your ministry life. Question three, what do you do 
to stir your love for God? What are your practices and habits? And so I'll give you one broad category, and then I have four specific points that are maybe a little less um, conventional. The broadest category I can say is to try to be near to God in experience, to know Jesus, to speak to him, to watch him work, to put myself places where I need him, and then he comes through for me. This is exposure to scripture. This is um, memorization of scripture, reading the Psalms, specifically finding myself um, in moments of solitude, silence, any of the spiritual disciplines that are really foundational for spiritual formation um, apply to me and are just as good for me as they've been for every other believer in the last 2,000 years. More specifically than that, there are four things I do, um, and I'll try to explain each of them in a way so that you understand what I'm saying, but there are four things I do on purpose in order to, um, in a moment where I don't feel affection for God, I think that's what this question's getting at, um, not just what do you do to keep yourself going, that's the spiritual formation disciplines, but What do you do when you're dried up, when it's dark in your heart, when you don't want to engage with God, when maybe you don't believe that he's good? Um, And I have four answers to that. First is I sing. And I typically don't sing a lot of songs that we sing at True North just because sometimes doing that puts me back in a mindset of work or it'll sort of transport my mind back to the sanctuary and I'll start remembering stuff that I meant to write down that I wanted to tweak about Sunday or I need to reach out to staff and ask questions or make suggestions. And I, I try not to be that kind of leader. And so... Um, I sing stuff that speaks to me about God and his character, um, about who he is, um, and I try to be a person who sings back to him. So time in the car, even if I have my headphones in, if it's just me, I'll sing loud. I don't care if people next to me on the road can see me, whatever. Maybe that's a testimony to, um, <laughs> to Jesus being real. I'm not sure, but that's a thing that I have to do. I think it's, there's a reason that for really all of human history, we have put our strongest emotions and our most meaningful experiences to music. And God is the source of those two things in my life. My strongest emotions, my most meaningful experiences come from him. So it makes sense to me to sing to him and about him, and that stirs me up. Um, Second is I like to rage a little bit, and I want to clarify what I mean by that. I'm not justifying any sinful or wicked behavior. What I mean is embracing and sometimes embodying the more negative emotions that I feel. Life is hard. Life is very hard. This has been a very hard 18 months. There have been major moments of me slamming my head against the wall, Um, not literally, but maybe more philosophically or when it comes to the practice of the church, decisions that we have to make. And so taking time to be honest with God about that, to be angry with God if I'm angry, to feel sad that God didn't do a thing that I think he could have done, to question him when I don't understand him. Um, And what I mean by question him is ask him questions, ask him to explain himself, ask him to tell me and connect with me and reassure me and restore my faith. And so some of the physical ways that I rage, um, sometimes I write, I like to write my prayers. It's a much more tangible experience for me than just speaking. I spend so much of my life already speaking that I can almost tune my own voice out sometimes and disengage even as I'm praying to God about a thing that I really care about. Um, I go to the gym. I try to go four times a week um, in the evenings usually, the last part of my day I'm at the gym. And I like to go at night because I know how much gas I have left in the tank and I can really burn out. Um, I get people who get up and work out in the morning. That's great. I'm not really a morning person anyway, and so I feel like that would just be worse for me (laughs) to do something hard at a time that I don't even want to be awake. Um, But I like going at the end of the day because I my job is very frustrating, and I don't mean that in a way where I'm complaining at all, but I spend most of my meeting time making recommendations to people to um, do certain things or not do certain things, believe a certain way, trust God. And then I have no control over whether they do that or not. And that's okay. I don't need that control, but it means I spend a lot of time dumping resources into people who probably 
one quarter to one half of the time decide to go their own way because they want something else or they love something else. And, and that's okay. That's their choice to make. I'm not trying to get away from that responsibility. But when I go in the gym, I can turn my phone on silent. I can listen to loud music. And I can throw what's left of my energy at something, at the weights. I can lay my hands on them. I can push myself. I can see if I've grown. I can track progress. And so I don't have any kind of fitness goal. I'm not trying to shape my body a certain way. I certainly want to be healthy. Um, but it just helps me to go and get that out. I sleep better at night. I think I'm a more kind and caring person at home in my personal life. And then sometimes I just yell if I need to yell. And I made the mistake even recently of yelling in a way that damaged my voice, such that uh, I would say that was foolishness. I shouldn't have done that. But I did. And uh, and I repented and I was sorry. And I confessed that to you, the church, that I had done that in response to a really challenging experience I'd had the week before. Um, I don't want to break anything. I don't want to be destructive, uh, but it does help me to embody a thing that I'm already feeling. I think choosing to be polite, choosing to hide it doesn't serve me well. It extends the time that I feel that way. It really makes me begin to believe what, what is not true, that God wouldn't welcome that if that's the honest place that I am. Um, the more I get to know the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, the more it seems that God really welcomes us in whatever state we're in, and that it's the approaching him that is our act of worship. It's acknowledging him. It's believing he's there. It's trusting that he'll act. I don't think we're so responsible for being polite or cleaned up or having everything put together. If that's the case, I have no hope in Christ. My hope in Christ is that he can do those works in me um, when I'm not feeling that way. And then the last two are pretty easy. One is just I obey when I feel far from God, when I don't feel my affections are stirred from him. I just do the thing anyway. And having followed him for long enough and loved him and had him not fail me for so many years, um, I have a real faith built up now. I have a functional trust that's based on evidence that he doesn't fail me, that he is listening, that he does care. Um, and then finally, number four is I read. And I don't just read anything. Um, I try to read Christian authors, typically guys who are already dead, no offense to those who are living, but you're just not done writing yet, so I'm not quite sure what you believe necessarily. I don't know if you know that yet either or not. But once a guy's dead, he's pretty much, as a rule, done writing. And so um, these great theologians, guys like um, Eugene Peterson and Francis Schaeffer and R.C. Sproul, J.C. Ryle, um, John Stott, Dallas Willard, um, I like a good mixture. A.W. Tozer is very formative for me, Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis. Um, I like a mixture of these guys that are pretty hardcore doctrinal theologians with some of these guys that are more mystical. And I'll tell you what I've noticed is when these great theological giants get into the last decade of their life, almost all of them start calling for church unity. I mean, almost without, I can't think of an exception to this, that in the last 10 years of their life, they stop fighting so hard for these harsh doctrinal positions that are so far from other believers. And they begin to say, we're never going to have all the answers. We can't know really any more than anybody else has in history. We can do all the mining of the original languages and study that we think we can do, but there's nothing really new to be learned about Christ from the Bible because it hasn't changed and it won't. And so they begin to call for Christians to spend more time together, to be more unified. And it's interesting because oftentimes if they themselves were a contender for the faith in their younger years and they did take harsh and hard doctrinal stances the new, more modern version of that, let's say these old guys are in their 80s or 90s, the new 30, 40, 50-year-olds who are now taking those hard and harsh positions, they tend to label the old guys as like heretics or mystics or universalists. They misinterpret the message that they're giving and they try to cast them out because the old guys aren't so hard and harsh anymore. They've softened up. They've humbled themselves before God. They've walked with him enough to realize that they don't know much. And so 
my world is very academic. It moves quickly. I have a lot of decisions to make. And spending time with those deceased brothers, with their writings, and sitting underneath their wisdom and just what they've learned in their old age, it calms me. It's peaceful. And I'll tell you what it does. It clears out. It blazes the trail. clears out all the underbrush between me and Jesus. I can see how to get to him again. I no longer question whether all of my belief has to be 100% accurate all the time. I no longer worry that evidences of sin in my life are going to disqualify my salvation. These are real things that I that I struggle with sometimes. I see Christ. I see that there's not much distance between he and I at all, and I see that he's still extending his hand to me and still saying, you can be with me. I want to be with you. I will fix those problems. I will heal you where you are wounded. I will correct you where you are wrong. And that's very helpful to me to reignite um, the love that I have for him. Um, let's jump down a couple here. I don't think we'll have time to get to all 10 today. I want to be respectful of you that are listening and be done in about 15 minutes. Um, I got a question, um, again, from the student ministry asking, how does a person stop sinning? And uh, I'll tell you, if you can figure that out, if there's a button you can push inside your soul such that you never go against God's will again, please let me know. I would love to use whatever platform I have to let anybody who will listen know how to do that. What I suspect is you will never stop sinning in in its entirety. Sin will never fully leave you until you've left this earth. Um, What I will say is maybe instead of entering into every situation asking yourself, is this sin or not, a better question to ask would be, how can I obey God in this instance, in this circumstance? Um, I think that when we are seeking to be obedient, we are far more effective and specifically less afraid and more humble than when we are mostly concerned with avoiding sin. I think avoiding sin is a great way to keep a person stuck in a very legalistic feedback loop, and I think that's probably what Satan, our enemy, loves. I think he loves to keep us in a place where we feel guilty, we believe that we'll never change, we take any instance of sin as evidence that God is not with us or near us. And the irony is, in 1 John, John says... If you deny that you have sin, that's actually not godly. That's calling God a liar. To to take responsibility and ownership for the sin that you have in your life is simply to align yourself with what God already knows and to admit that you're wrong and then to place the onus, the impetus to make yourself right onto Christ instead of yourself. So um, I think that that's a better question. How can I obey God? Here's the best question you can ask is, why do I love Jesus? In any situation, ask yourself, why do I love Jesus? Do I love him? Why do I love him? And I, I think what you'll find is, When you remember why you love him, really what you're answering is, is why do you think he is worth loving? What makes him worthy? And when you remember why he's worthy, that will ignite love in you that will lead to obedience, that will lead to repentance. And I believe you'll spend your time trying to follow Jesus where he is instead of just trying to avoid places where you think he might not be. Um, I was asked a question by a church member um, about a year ago, and uh, recently again at a lunch meeting, somebody asked me, um, what is my motivation in ministry? What is it that, that makes me feel that the way that I spend my time, my days and weeks, months and years is worthwhile and uh, is is going to be something I won't regret later? And I think that's a really good question. It's a little bit existential, but I'll get into the weeds with you guys here. Um, I think I have a set of internal motivations as well as a set of external motivations, and I'll start with the external here. Um, I am really motivated externally by people whom we live among. Um, especially people whom I interact with on the internet. Um, I am not active on Facebook. I have a Facebook account just so I can monitor the church's Facebook page and interact with people who have questions or needs. 
I'm relatively active on Instagram. I have a Twitter. I almost never tweet because somebody would probably burn me an effigy on one side of the political or religious line or the other. I don't know. I'm not interested in that, but I use it to keep up with news. I also use it to monitor culture. And so um, in order to preach a sermon that's effective in the community that I live in, I feel that it's my responsibility to be well acquainted with that community. And so I'm really active on Reddit. Um, I'm engaged in the atheism subreddits, in the anti-Christian subreddits, in the exvangelical subreddits, in the deconstruction subreddits, in the many of the denominational Protestant subreddits, the Roman Catholic subreddit. I just, I want to be present. I feel that that's the modern marketplace. That's the place where the Apostle Paul would have gone to hear the philosophers of the day reasoning with each other. And I think any social media platform is probably this today, but Reddit, man, people go to Reddit just to really rip into each other. And so I know that I'm going to get the most extreme versions of whatever problems people have with my faith. And I think we have to be careful that, that we don't over-engage. My job is not to change anybody's mind online. I don't actually think that that's possible. But I like to ask questions. I like to get clarification. I like to say, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I represent. What would you say to me? Instead of just screaming your complaints into the void of the internet space, tell me what you think, and then I will consider those things. I will go to God's word with your questions. I might have an answer. I might not. But it really fuels my motivation because if I only spent time with the people of True North Church, the people of this church are so willing and servant-hearted and giving and engaging and... Uh, we have such a great community here that it would lull me to sleep. And I'm not saying that just to boost the the stats of our church. I truly mean that. I love where I work. I love the people that I get a chance to be a part of leading. But it wouldn't keep me on my edge. It wouldn't keep me fresh. It wouldn't keep me motivated to push and say hard things and critique the church in areas that it needs to be critiqued. And so I go intentionally to places where I can hear people speak against the things that I believe in. Uh, I want to listen. I want to learn. I believe that God is more powerful and stronger than any critique or criticism, and so I don't really fear that I'm going to have my mind changed or anything like that. Um, and I would just ask you this question if you disagree with that or you find that um, maybe a little bit hard to wrap your mind around. Um, what is it that doctors spend most of their time studying? If doctors are people who want to help you get well, do they need to have a greater knowledge of what health looks like, or do they need to just simply be able to interact with sickness in any form? not knowing what you're going to bring into their office, not knowing what baggage you're going to have, what your past is, how long you've been sick. Um, you may not know this. Doctors spend a little bit of time studying the, the body and how it's supposed to work. They need to know that. But they spend most of their time trying to understand all of the different ways that it can go wrong and memorizing those diagnoses and figuring out treatment plans and listening to other people that are on the front lines medically that are working with new diseases that we haven't seen before. And I think that's a good analogy for what it is to be a pastor in a postmodern space. Um, Anchorage is a postmodern, I would argue, even post-Christian city. What I mean by that is basically every church, Protestant or not, evangelical or not, is dying right now. They're all smaller every year than they were the year before. Young people are not being reached at all, and we are just collectively embracing the secular zeitgeist in our city. We are like a Seattle or a Portland or a San Francisco in that way. And so it's important to me to be where the people who are sick are, to learn what's going on with them, to really listen, not just to be seeking for a way to cure their problem, but to learn from them and understand. Um, and that keeps me very motivated because I believe that I have a chance to do that and that I can reason with people in a way maybe that somebody who isn't doing that homework wouldn't be able to do. And then internally, where do I find my motivation? Um, some of it is personality for me. My personality is that of a challenger. I um, 
I have to work very hard in my relationships to not push too hard on other people. I've been too much for many people in my life in the past. That's been their critique. It's just too much, Philip. You're too heavy-handed. You got to you got to lay off. You got to back off a little bit. And so I work hard on gentleness. I'm not great at it, um, but I have an internal desire to go faster, to push harder, to try something new, to experiment a little bit, and that motivates me in my responsibilities as well. True North is in an interesting position where we're 10 years old, but developmentally we're kind of between years four and five, and we've got a lot of irons in the fire right now, a lot of changes happening, but I find all of that really engaging and exciting. And I don't think I need it. I certainly would be very happy to enjoy the other side of these changes. I'm planning to do that for a good long time. Um, but I like the progress and the change. And I love seeing people around me rise to the occasion, get better, um, discover their gifts, their proficiencies, their abilities, and then lock in with each other, arm in arm, step in step to serve God's kingdom. Um, I find some motivation in my calling. Um, I find much of my motivation in the life of my wife, Andy. Um, at home, at the home that I live in with Andy, I am allowed to be a person and to really be the person that I am, um, not an act, not somebody cleaned up or polished or performing for anybody. Uh, doesn't mean I get to just get away with whatever I want at all. Um, I'm very accountable in my home, but in a healthy way, in a way that I welcome, even if it's challenging or painful in the moment sometimes. Andy is extremely gentle. She's very careful with her words. She knows that uh, words are kind of uniquely special to me in my life. And so she goes out of her way in a way that is not natural to her at all to serve me by speaking clearly, accurately, slowly, patiently with me. Um, and Andy is really the foundation that I push off of. She has created a home for me uh, that allows me to do what I do for Jesus outside of our home. And I have certainly seen uh, pastors and pastors' wives sort of be these Christian superhero power couples. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. But we are a great team at home. Andy does not aspire to be on stages, writing books, communicating via podcasts, preaching sermons, teaching groups. Her goal from the beginning has been to support me. And that's one of the things that drew me to her, which this is the next question on my list, is that Andy's never really been that impressed with me. Now, I don't mean that in a mean way. You're going to laugh to yourself and think, geez, man, tell us how you really feel. But what I mean by that is... I believe Andy sees me accurately. I think she sees me clearly. And I value that so much more than her being another person who thinks I'm the greatest at fill in the blank. And you may not think that. You may not relate to that idea at all about me. That's okay. I don't think that I'm the greatest at really anything. But since I've been in college, I've had an ability and a gift to communicate the Bible. And people, I think, have had bigger plans for my life than I have. People have assumed that I would be writing, that I would be preaching, that I might plant a big church or be at a big church somewhere in the lower 48. And who knows what God will do? None of that's on the horizon for me. But Andy didn't want to come along for the ride. That wasn't what drew her to me. That wasn't what made me appealing to her. Um, she wanted me the person, me the individual, me the young man, and now me, God willing, the mature man who is able to lead our family and home and love her and take my pastor hat off, though I do constantly stomp around our house and say, listen to this thing I just read. I've been reading the Bible. What do you think about this? Would you say people are this way? Is this an idol of our culture? And Andy has to gently say to me sometimes, Philip, I don't need you to preach to me right now. I love you. I need you to be my husband. Uh, if you can leave the pastor at the office a couple days a week, that would help our family. Again, I'm, I'm joking a little bit. I'm being facetious. But she, she, is, she sees me accurately, and she's kind, and she's careful. And so that's part of why I love being with her. Uh, it's also such a helpful internal motivation for me to think about um, her and what she needs in her life and what she's dealing with and how I can preach in a way that would connect to a person like her who is so different from me. 
Um, we have three questions left, but we're not going to have time to get to all of them. And so I'm going to quickly hit two. Uh, one is, what are the characteristics you would recommend in a spouse? This is another one that came from our high school students. And I'll just shoot you straight. I won't even unpack this for you. I would say they had better love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. That's it. That's the most important thing. If that is going right, then you don't have anything to worry about. God will work the rest of it out. And then last question I'll answer for the sake of today, what are the hardest sermons that I prepare for? And I would say when I have to speak to a person about their weakness or if I have to address the congregation, and I know that some of the people sitting out there are carrying a, a some legitimate form of damage that they've had to live through, but I understand that that damage, if not handled correctly, if not spoken about, if not acknowledged, could actually lead them into destruction in their life. Those are the hardest ones where I, I have to, because of what the Bible says, communicate with great care and a lot of skill, hopefully more and more all the time, um, to, to speak to their circumstances. This previous Sunday at the time that I'm recording this podcast, I had to touch briefly on those who long for children but don't have them, whether they're single and don't want to be or they struggle with fertility. My objective is always to say to a person like that, your trauma, your damage, your stress is legitimate. I'm not here to disqualify it or tell you that you can't have that in a church like this. My warning to you is I believe the same warning Jesus gives people in the New Testament over and over again. The Apostle Paul does too in every epistle. If you don't carry that thing, that trauma, that damage, that past, if you don't take it to Jesus, it will take you to destruction. And so that's my goal. Those are the hardest. I have to be careful when I do that. Um, God willing, that lands in a way that is gracious and that elevates Christ as better than any wound that we have, but also so humble, so willing, so kind to be patient with us, to be careful with us, to be soothing to the places that we carry wounds. So that's all the time we have today. Um, Next time, uh, I'm going to be sitting down with another one of our elders, one of our lay elders, Ian Johannes. Ian has been at True North Church from the very beginning, was a part of the lead team, uh, survived some very challenging early days in the life of the church, and is now one of our elders, a great friend to me, such a great blessing to my ministry and a support to our team at True North. Um, he and I are going to be talking a little bit about this previous sermon, Sunday's sermon, which I entitled Little Gods, coming out of Exodus chapter 8 with the uh, plague of the frogs, the goddess Heket, and the idols of family and fertility. Uh, we'll spend around 40 minutes throwing the ball back and forth on how can kids become an idol in our lives, how do we acknowledge that, what do we do to course correct, how do we build uh, a culture in a local church where that isn't normal, where we see other things as better and more valuable than just... Uh, building our lives around our children. If you have any questions along those lines, we would love to hear from you. As always, you can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. You can use the subject line, podcast questions. Um, And until then, know that we love you, that we are here for you, and we hope that this has been an encouragement. We'll see you soon.